You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. We are with Tara Zara, the Homer G. Livingston Professor of History at the University of Chicago. It's me, Rosalind Johnston, presenting. Tara Zara has been joining us as a guest at our Transformations of Freedom Festival. And today for the podcast, we're going to be talking about her newest, newly completed project, which is Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the World Wars. So thank you very much for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, maybe can you talk a little bit about how you think sort of anti-globalism comes about in this interwar period? I mean, I think when I started the project, it was with a pretty naive understanding, which was really following the sources at the time saying, you know, before World War One, all was great. It was the era of freedom, of mobility. I mean, I knew that wasn't true for migration already, but I had this general picture in mind of the First World War as the big breaking point. And I quickly realized that World War One is an important moment of rupture, but that the beginnings of discontent with globalization really, of course, stem back from the moment when globalization itself is accelerating in the late 19th century. At the same time in the late 19th century, you have really the rise of mass politics. And that means more people are voting and people are also getting out on the streets, protesting, they're writing to the government and making demands. And that means that there's more opportunity for people who feel that they're negatively affected by globalization to speak back. I start there and then move on to the rupture of the First World War. You said in your lecture that the economic history of this period really has been very well written and that you're focusing instead perhaps on a kind of like sociopolitical or a cultural kind of history of this time. But I did want to ask you what role is the kind of economic crisis of this interwar period playing in the mobilization of people and the ideas that you're finding in these texts? It plays out in different contexts differently. For example, in Austria, you really see this incredibly powerful settlement movement emerge right after the First World War. It's very much about the first hunger and then a response to the naval blockade and the feeling that Austria as a new state is not viable and cannot feed itself. And so we have to do something in order to produce more food and be more self-sufficient. But I would say that in other parts of Europe and the world, it's really only the Great Depression that radically changes the course of things. So in the United States, for example, FDR, there's a New Deal homestead project, which seeks to put unemployed workers on self-sufficient farms. That's a response to the Great Depression. I think it really does vary from context to context, but almost everywhere, 1929, 1930, 1931, that's a turning point. In the book that I'm writing, I've really divided it into three parts. One is the era before the First World War and the war itself. One is the period right after the First World War. And then the 1930s is kind of the heart of it. As a historian of Central Europe, I'd sort of understood that perhaps you had identified Central Europe as a particularly kind of striking, important or perhaps productive space for these ideas in the first place. Do you chart a kind of trajectory of these ideas moving around the global north, around the globe? Is it kind of happenstance and coincidence that people are kind of arriving at these same ideas at the same time? Or do you see a kind of transfer of them from one place to another in the time frame that you sketched? 
I do think that Central Europe is really important. The loss of empire and the loss of the war in Germany and Austria have a profound both economic and psychological effect. Initially, what's interesting, for example, in Germany is that it's not anti-global. It's the argument at Versailles is that the allies are cutting us out of the global economy. And that's true. If you look closely at the documents, that's what they were trying to do. And for Austria, you know, kind of just this idea that we're not viable. But it's not absent in the United States. The U.S. famously does not join the League of Nations. The 1920s is the period of the Red Scare, of prohibition, of major restrictions on migration. So I think in some ways, this is already, after the war, a broadly transnational phenomenon. Are the actors at the time talking in terms of globalization and anti-globalization? I think of these as terms that are so resonant and relevant at the current moment. Um, are you finding that these were terms used then? Or are there other ways in which these sorts of complaints and discontents are being framed? So they are anachronistic terms, and I was sort of very conscious of that. And I think there's some dangers to applying contemporary analytic terms uh, sort of on the past, although we do it all the time, actually. But but the terms that they were using at the time, I mean, there was talk about the problems of Weltwirtschaft in German. Uh, there was talk of uh, Selbstständigkeit. So I learned what the terms were to search for, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. when I was doing the research. And they were, you know, really about self-sufficiency, autarky, um, freedom, nutritional freedom, kind of terms that pretty clearly pointed to discontent with the global economy in various ways without using the word globalization or anti-globalism. And you suggested that actors on both the political left and right were very often using these similar terms, but that it would be a simplification to say they're all the same thing. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of polarization of the use of these terms and why we should nuance our understandings and kind of not see this as a consensus, I suppose? Well, first of all, I, I feel like it's very important just to emphasize that this is not simply a project of the far right, because there's a danger of sort of Globalization is good, and then anti-globalism leads to fascism. That's not the case. It's very clear that these kinds of ideas and even similar policies are enacted, as I said, in dictatorships and democracies on the right and the left within states, in small and big states. So there's huge diversity. But that said, I think that similar policies are often adopted with different ideological ends in mind. So... On the right, you see a really strong anti-urban sentiment driving these ideas that you want to kind of bring people back to the land because cities are bad and cities are bad because of, you know, socialists and workers and because they're eugenically bad and a real idea of a threat to the nation and national culture from globalization. I think on the left, you still might have that same anxiety about the nation and nationalism is not absent, but there's more of a concern about the worker and an effort to think about how do we protect workers from the instability of the global economy. When uh, you've been writing in the past about the nation in the book Kidnap Souls in particular, an argument that I understand from it that I really like about it is that nationalist activists really need to kind of like 
boot people, to like really push people to kind of care about the nation. A lot of the sources that we read about the nation would actually be born of a kind of lack of interest, perhaps, in this key category on the part of many voters. It seems like here you're kind of charting the opposite, which is that anti-globalism is a really sort of mobilising idea and specifically lower down the political ladder. I mean, are these opposite political forces? What is the relationship between the pair of them, if that's meaningful to sketch? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's necessarily uh, contradictory. Nationalism and anti-globalism have a really complex relationship. Some anti-globalists are nationalists, but others are self-consciously internationalists. So I talk about anti-colonial nationalists who are globalist in their political outlook. They want to cooperate, particularly to create alliances among colonized people, but they want greater economic self-sufficiency as a route to a less exploitative form of internationalism and globalism. Then there's a question of indifference, and that's interesting as well, because I'm focused in this project really on mass mobilization, which is the opposite of indifference. But one thing you do see is that once states actually take up many of these policies, there are limits. I mean, particularly to anything involving consumer behavior and boycotts become very popular in this moment. The idea of empire shopping in Britain or buying only hand spun cloth in India. And sometimes that's a really hard sell. So you see pushback in that sense. And then I think also when it comes to these settlement movements that I write about that are about sending people back to the land to produce more food and become self-sufficient, people are very eager to do that. I mean, I found thousands of letters to the Roosevelt administration saying, please send me back to the farm, give me a piece of land. But it's really hard work, especially it's about transplanting workers from the city with no experience in agriculture. It often goes very badly. These projects often don't go the way the planners and experts and politicians and even maybe the activists themselves hope they will. I don't know if that's indifferent, but there's disappointment often. I wanted to ask you on the flip side about the sort of winners of anti-globalisation, because I think very often nowadays the idea is that there can be no winner from anti-globalisation, maybe like that we sort of all lose. Are there some people who actually, this was a great time for them, they did very well and they kind of used this rhetoric very deftly to their own advantage? So one of the chapters in the book is about the Bata shoe company, which does something so interesting. And they become a winner by doing the opposite of what everyone else does. They lean into globalization. So the company, basically, they lose their huge imperial market in 1918. It's a big shoe company with a small domestic base of consumers. And everybody is increasing tariffs on shoes, <laughs> Uh, and nobody wants foreign shoes coming into their country. So what Bata does is they move the factories overseas and then, you know, they can go to India and claim to be supporting Indian independence because they're making shoes in India and employing Indian workers and they are Indian local products. And they do that everywhere. This is sort of one of the points I wanted to make is that you can't simply say there's a binary opposition between globalization and anti-globalism. In this case, in the case of Bata, the sort of closing down of certain frontiers actually generates new forms of globalization like the multinational corporation. Maybe that it didn't take World War II for some of these ideas to be listened to, but a sort of new consensus kind of arose 
and was encoded in international institutions after World War II. Do you see what happened next as kind of the victory of anti-globalism or what is the end of this story? Because I understand it, while there are resonances now, you're closing a story too. It's a moment of hope, but then ultimately of some disappointment. The creation of the welfare state after the Second World War, the Bretton Woods Agreement, the United Nations, these are all really, I think, efforts to rebuild the global economy and internationalism in a more stable and equitable way. But then comes the Cold War. (laughs) So um, a lot of the ideals that framed those agreements and policies kind of get thrown out. They don't live up to their expectations. And then Bretton Woods itself kind of disappears by the 1970s and a new era of kind of hyper-globalization sets in. But yeah, I still think that there are some legacies of that post-war moment that have remained with us. I think you sort of certain ideas about Keynesian economics that I think have actually become in some ways more popular in recent years. It's not to say that it hasn't been challenged. It really has, but it's kind of survived in certain ways. And I think, obviously, the welfare state of today is not the welfare state of 1945 or 1950, but there is still, I think, some consensus. There is some idea that some of the gross inequalities created by globalization domestically can be addressed through social protection of various kinds, whether it's guaranteed health insurance or other kinds of initiatives. All of those things are under salt. There are many positive legacies, even if they are still being challenged. Tara Zara, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the great questions. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna. Music